in class this week, we were watching an interview with uh, Vincent D'Onofrio and Ethan Hawke and the author of a new book on The Method on the Criterion Channel. And I was watching these two giant creative forces talking about a method that had been developed a hundred years ago by a Russian in Moscow and then further developed by Lee Strasberg in New York. And I thought, wow, what a perfect thing to, to disrupt, that we're still adhering to something that is a century old. Granted, maybe it's because it works. Maybe it's because it's really good. That's why it's, it's stuck around so long. But anything that, that, that is that old comes with a lot of reverence. And I'm allergic. I'm allergic to unfounded reverence. Like, for instance, um, Shakespeare. University, I was so into Shakespeare because people told me I was. I, I, it, it didn't occur to me that me, my being so bored could be a factor in how good I was at it, in how much I, time I wanted to spend on it, in how much sunk in. I, it took me years to realize the power of stop doing things that you don't like doing. I mean, I found theater so stressful that as soon as I quit doing it and took myself out of the running, I was so much happier. Now, of course, it's a different tune. I'd love to do theater again, I think. I don't know. Maybe it's one of those things that, that you only miss because you don't know, because you're naive. I'm still naive at 51. So the method is a method. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? The, ad, the, the, the method, the, the, the way that Americans act. You know, they feel it, they, they live it, they be it. The British have sort of traditionally worked the opposite, from the outside in, they take in their environment, the information around them, the given circumstances, and they let that affect them. The method is all about how did your father treat you and why do you hate your mother and and whatever works. You know, like, uh, did you ever have that math teacher who even though you got the right answer would ask to see your work and then if your work wasn't up to snuff that would affect your mark that doesn't happen in acting no one wants to see how the sausage is made no one wants to see the work they just want you to show up and do it and do it better than anyone else and potentially faster faster than anyone else because it'll save everybody time and money so it doesn't matter the means as long as the means are serving you. The beauty about being a Canadian actor is that we're right in between, stylistically at least. We can cherry pick the best of both worlds. We can go outside in, we can go inside out, we can make a mountain out of a molehill, or we can fake it till we make it. The beauty of being in the middle of the road is that you can pick from either side. What is interesting is historical context. It's, uh, it takes a bit of work, but if you can, if you can put yourself in 
um, an audience member's shoes from the 1950s. The first time you lay eyes on a Marlon Brando acting the way he, he did and on the waterfront, it's, it's something to be seen because of the presentational uh, style of acting that audiences back then had been used to. Acting, for the most part, up until the 40s, was uh, overt, was obvious, was based on vaudeville and uh, Victorian uh, theatrical styles. And then Lee Strasberg and Marlon Brando and Elia Kazan and Clifford Odets and Arthur Miller and Orson Welles, they started doing other stuff. They started acting like it was real. Not real life, not like with the weird uh, tells and verbal tics that, that we all do day to day, more grounded in reality. But still, knowing full well that you're there to serve the audience. If you want to see a really good example of this, watch Giant, starring Rock Hudson and, and James Dean and Elizabeth Taylor. But I always forget about her. Because she's doing Elizabeth Taylor, and there was nothing wrong with that. There's just nothing wrong with it, the young Elizabeth Taylor. Because she, she was a movie star. She's one of those preternatural, rare creatures. Rock Hudson, however, was from a different generation. He was about, I don't know, 20 years older than James Dean when they were in Giant together. And you watch Rock Hudson in one movie, one version of Giant, and then James D., this young kid, in another one. And... Uh, as overwrought and uh, emoting as James Dean was, he certainly wasn't wooden. He certainly wasn't phoning it in like Rock does. We can switch. We can do that. Nothing has to be so precious. That's where the method falls apart, is that uh, it focuses on the self a lot. There has to be balance, though. The self is there to serve your audience and your scene partner. It's not about you. But you've got to go inside and do the work. What does that look like? Well, there are things, you know, like substitution and emotional preparation and recall. And there are all these things that'll get you ready, that'll get you there. Too many times in class we focus on getting there so badly because it feels so good. The women cry. The men scream. We did great work today, guys. But in real life, or I mean out in the world of being an actor... 95% of the work is you talking. It's not you crying. It's not histrionics. We wish it were, but it's not. Not everything is Awake and Sing. Not everything is John Patrick Shanley. Not everything is uh, Christopher Durang. I think it boils down to the truth, really. You got to focus on the truth. You got to do whatever serves the truth. And that starts with listening, really actively listening. Stillness, only move if it improves on stillness, only speak if it improves on silence. You know, as annoying as Shakespeare is, I gotta hand it to him. He said a lot of fucking amazing stuff, like his lesson on acting. From Hammy, Prince of Darkness, Uh, Act 3, Scene 2. Speak the speech, I pray you. 
as I pronounced it to you trippingly on the tongue. Speak the speech as I pronounced it to you trippingly on the tongue. Just say it. But if you mouth it, as many of our players do, if you make a mountain out of a molehill, I had as leaf the town crier spoke my lines. I, I, I might as well hire the town crier to yell at me. Nor do not saw the air too much with your hand thus. So just don't move unless you've got a good reason to. Use all gently, for in the very torrent, tempest, and as I may say, whirlwind of your passion, so in all of that, all of your inner turmoil that you love so much, all the crying and the screaming and the breathing, my God, actors like to breathe loudly. You must acquire and beget a temperance, please, that may give it smoothness. Temper, take it easy. Sit there and listen. Oh, it offends me to the soul to hear a robustious, periwig-pated fellow tear a passion to tatters, I'm not sure what that means, to very rags, to split the ears of the groundlings. Do you see where Shakespeare falls apart? I mean, he just goes on and on. He already made his point, and now he's repeating himself. But he is saying here the groundlings. He mentions the audience, finally, the reason why we're here. Uh, then he goes on to uh, trash them, the audience, the groundlings, who, for the most part, are capable of nothing but inexplicable dumb shows and noise. And that's a Shakespearean burn. I would have such a fellow whipped for overdoing Termagant. I think that's a role or a play from back in the Dark Ages. I don't care. It out Herod's Herod. Herod was the guy who was looking for Jesus, right? He was the proxy king in uh, Israel, wasn't it? And he killed all the babies, the murder of the innocents or whatever, looking for baby G's. Anyways, uh, I get off topic, just like Shakespeare did, but it's all there. Speak the speech. That's it. Just do that. And then the rest of the time, pay attention to your scene partner. So if the method helps you get there, fine. But if the method helps you get to a place where you suddenly think you're more important than everybody else, then take a step back, Americana. There's other people here. We're not storytellers. We're collaborators. We're tiny, shiny, beautiful, unique cogs in a big, bad, coked-up, fat-as-fuck, exciting a weird, dirty, rotten business that we all want to be a part of. I don't know why I get so worked up. Let's take some questions. Hi, my name is Loretia and I'm an actor from Toronto. My question is on how to save. I get these gigs and I'm not the greatest with my savings. So I was wanting to know on if you could give me some pointers on how we could save as an actor. Thank you so much. I love the show. And yeah, thank you. Saving is hard at the best of times. Saving's hard for people with jobs, let alone someone who works in the gig economy. How on earth are you supposed to save money? How are you supposed to budget when you don't know where your next paycheck is? Two things. First of all, you've got to have another job. You just have to these days. Even when you're a successful actor, you shouldn't quit. Don't quit your day job. I shouldn't have. I didn't, I didn't have one for years until now. But things are different. Things are harder. 
And it doesn't matter to you if you're young and you're starting out because you don't know any different, which is a strength. It's for old people like me that have to. You know, every time I record, a helicopter shows up. Can you hear that? Maybe you can't. Maybe I'm the only one who's annoyed right now. So I'm the one that has to adapt. And adaptation, adapting, is difficult. But if you don't know any better, so that's the one thing. Don't quit your day job and get into forced savings. That's the thing. Do you know how um, you've got subscriptions on your phone or on your computer or on your TV? You subscribe to Netflix or Crave or Disney. Those are easy. They make it so easy, don't they? A couple clicks and boom, it just silently renews every single month. And their little hands from L.A. or New York or somewhere in Gothenburg, Sweden, Spotify that is, they just dip their tiny little uh, corporate hands into your back pocket and they take money out. Apple, Steve Jobs has your all of your credit card numbers. They're so smart at it. We've got to be that smart as far as saving our money. Here's how you do it. Automatic saving. I know you don't have much money, or I assume you don't have much money, okay, if you're an actor. I'm not talking about people with a ton of money. I'm talking about you putting 25 bucks a month or a hundred bucks a month, or whatever you can, every single month, and treat it like a subscription to a streamer. Treat it like something that, use the power of, of how you forget where all your money goes, and just direct one tributary over to a GIC, or a high-interest savings account, or uh, an index fund or um, an ETF, you know, something really boring, something really low fee, so no mutual funds allowed, something, unless it's Vanguard, something really dull and unsexy. Think of it as the opposite of Netflix and just make it automatic so you forget about it, so you can't get your hands on it. It's called paying yourself first. It doesn't matter what your bills are. doesn't matter how much money you blew at the casino or the bar or on that fella you like so much. It doesn't matter. Automatically, 100 bucks a month comes out of any money you make and goes right into your future, your future self. You're just paying your future self. So pay yourself first. That's how you do it. As far as budgeting goes, uh, Laratia, I have no idea. I've never figured it out. I'm not a spreadsheet guy. I'm not a budget guy. I think I have to become one now, now that I'm 51. You know, they say it's never too late to start. Oh, man, I hope they're right, because this is, this is terrifying, this new economy where um, the capitalists have had enough with workers' rights and stuff, and... Anyways, um, the one thing I did learn uh, over um, my last 25 years of being an actor is if you can have an emergency fund, that is key. And I got really good at that. I got good at putting money. It's uh, all about proximity. You don't want to get too 
close to your own money. You need to keep it at arm's length. So I got good at keeping a bunch of cash on hand in a place I had a hard time getting at it. It was in a different account. I had to sign into a different part of my banking. And I would try and keep that at a level. You know, I always kept four months of expenses. I had four months worth of cash uh, lying around. That, that, so I didn't tie it up in things. I didn't tie it up in, um, I didn't buy big ticket items. I'm just naturally Scottish too, okay? I've got that going for me. And I've never had credit card debt. Well, that's not true. I've never, I haven't had it in 20 years. So all of those things are key. You've got to keep money in cash away from where you can, you can, can get your dirty, dirty little mitts on it. You've got to force yourself to spend. Treat it like Netflix. Thirdly, you've got to live within your means. Keep your expenses down. That means you've got to get really you got to enjoy getting a bargain. You've got to delay gratification. I call it financial edging. You find the clothes you want. You find the car you want. You find the sneakers you want. You shop for them online. You look at them. You put them in your cart. Yeah, you find the right size. This is what I used to do. I used to go into the Adidas website, and I'd build custom-made shoes. And then I'd just leave them in the cart, and I would close up the, my browser. I would do everything but pay for them. Everything. And then I'd walk away and go, man, I just saved myself 200 bucks. And so I got uh, an endorphin rush in building the shoe. I got um, the anticipation of like putting it in my cart, knowing it's there. And then I got a further high from saving $200. It's lies, Loretia. It's lies that we tell us. It's lies we tell ourselves that, that, that will benefit us. I hope this helps. Um, you've got to choose the story you tell yourself. So why not choose the one that serves? And just think about the money you spend now on conspicuous items is money that could grow and be working for you later. So as soon as, think about this, as soon as you spend money, you're firing employees. Money is employees that work for you, all right? If you put them into an, a financial instrument, and it doesn't have to be something confusing these days with the interest rates being so high, put them in to a high interest rate savings account. You get your 4% or whatever it is at the time of writing, and you're making four bucks on a hundred, or you're making 40 bucks on a thousand. I mean, that's not bad at all. That's way better than it's been in decades. Money is hard to make, and it's easy to lose. I mean, it just slips through your hands if you're not careful. So just practice practicing that, and give yourself a break when it doesn't work out. Practice practicing that. We're just practicing the practice, all right? That's, we're, we're not doing anything else. We're not practicing making millions. We're practicing the practice of being financially literate. Thanks for the question. 
Hello, my name is Rahul and I'm from Brampton. My question for the podcast is that I want to know the difference between a unionized actor and a non-unionized actor. Thank you. Love the show. Thanks for the question, Rahul. I am a fervent supporter of workers' rights because I'm a worker. I don't know anybody who wouldn't be. So if you ever run into someone who argues, well, what's the point of unions? It's, it's, this, is, this is the point of unions, is that without them, management wouldn't just take care of their employees. If they had, unions wouldn't exist. The whole idea with capitalism is you take as much profits as possible from the business you've began, you've built up. You've done all this hard work. Why on earth would you want to pay your employees more than you have to? That wouldn't make any sense. And you'd be crazy if you did. So, unions were born because workers didn't have any rights they weren't getting paid properly. They didn't have a weekend. They didn't have, uh, they couldn't afford health insurance. They had to work for hours and hours and hours a day in unsafe conditions. So the difference between a union actor and a non-union actor is a non-union actor is willing to sacrifice their safety and their worth for the short term. Let me give it to you in dollars and cents. For a scale performer, according to the National Commercial Agreement on the Actor Toronto website, the session fee is $868.50 for eight hours. Then you'll get residuals, which are purchased in 13-week cycles. Now, these are sort of more confusing. For a network national campaign for market units one to five in a market like Vancouver, you'll get $961. Oh, sorry, that's a one-year term, not a 13-week cycle. What happened to the cycles? Um, The bigger the market, like Toronto, the more money you'll make. So Toronto weighs in at 17 Units and you'll get paid $1,269.55. But I thought that was for a 13 week cycle. It says here one year term. Anyways, it goes up the more market units that, um, that your commercial commands. So the more eyeballs that are on it. Um, so, uh, let's see. For instance, I started making triple scale in 2002. And I haven't got a raise yet. It was great money back then because you would get paid for the use of your face. And so you wouldn't have to be there to work it, to, to earn money. You would earn money because you were your face was burned for other work. I got burned up in beer commercials, car commercials, 
insurance commercials, uh, tons of them. And it was so good because I'd be taken out of the running for a whole bunch of other stuff, but at least I was remunerated for it and fairly. And then I could be a part of uh, uh, growing the economy. I could be a reasonable, uh, productive taxpayer in this country. Now, non-union, the floor's the limit, my friend. You could get paid uh, 500 bucks for the day and then a $1,500 buyout for the whole year. Two grand. Now, you could say to me, but two, two grand for a day's work, that's good. Sure, but if you do that for, um, let's see, let's say you're doing a bank commercial, okay? Let's say you're CIBC. They're ones that only do non-union work now, apparently. So you get $2,000 for the day, and then you're the CIBC guy for the whole year, or two, or three, or in perpetuity. And now you won't be able to work for any other financial institutions because you will be perceived as a conflict. Now, how far has that $2,000 got you? How many, what kind of profits did CIBC make last year? I know they're not the biggest, but they're in the top five, right? Profits, CIBC, 2022, 6.6 billion. Wow. CIBC, you're doing great for bringing up the rear, but you can't pay an actor a living wage. So, uh, Rahul, I don't know if you've detected any sort of cynicism in my voice or uh, any sort of um, politicking. Uh, I am partisan. I am completely biased. I'm a working actor that has bought a house, that has paid his taxes, that has paid for his children uh, for many years. And, um, and I was able to be an active part of this country and the taxes and the charitable donations and the living, all because of my union, not because of capitalism, but because of my fellow performers that went before and put their necks on the line so I think that might have been more than what you asked for. In summation, the difference between a union actor and a non-union actor is the union actor knows their worth, and a non-union actor has the union to thank, because without the union creating the very baseline of pay, a client like CIBC, without the union, would try to pay less than the $2,000 they have to pay now. Why is it so hard to get in the union? Great question. Great question that you didn't ask, but I'm going to talk about it because I can't answer it either. There may have been a time when exclusivity was the right move, but now the union has to move faster to let everybody in. Hoover up every single act, make them all union. Then what will the union busting uh, ICA do when they have no one else to work for them. Oh, I'm in a mood. Hi. Well, thank you for your show. My name is Andrea. I live in Toronto and um, I've been here for five years. Uh, that means I still have an accent 
and um, I am from Latin America. I'm from Venezuela. I just want to know if I should be working more on like getting rid of my accent or should I just embrace it? I will really love your opinion about that. Andrea, you're adorable. God, what a great accent. No, don't get rid of it. You know, you wouldn't want to get rid of it even if you could. You just got to work on being understood. You Look, this is a strength of yours. I know you've probably been told by other people you got to sound as, I don't know, Canadian as possible. But those are the same people that tell Canadian actors that you got to sound as American as possible. I mean, there are actual classes, or at least there were, where, 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 where you could pay someone money to learn an American dialect. Have some self-respect, Canada. What on earth is wrong with the way we talk? What's wrong with our stories? Why does everything have to be dumbed down to the lowest common denominator? And yeah, that's what I'm calling you, America. The blandification of entertainment. I'm sick of it. Andrea, I think the only thing you have to work on is talking slower, is your enunciation. Don't uh, get rid of your accent. So often we perceive our strengths as weaknesses, and we perceive our liabilities as assets. But really, if you just reframe things, uh, the opposite is often true. First of all, what's going to separate you from the crowd? Is it you trying really hard to sound like everybody else? No. What's going to separate you from the crowd is you being more you. In other words, getting out of your own way. In other words, shedding all those doubts. There's a lot of naysayers out there and in your head. It's our job to walk past them. It's not about... um, dismantling you or breaking you down so I can build you back up again. It's not about you becoming someone else. It's about, it's about you becoming more you. And the way you do that is you shut out all the noise. And that's anybody who doesn't believe in you. Cut them out. You've got to surround yourself with people that are going to encourage you no matter what. That's what you need. That's what everybody needs. But we totally, we, we, we do it to ourselves. We always hurt ourselves. We're like, no, give me the tough love. No, you need the love love. And I am here to tell you that this is, this is what it sounds like. <laughs> uh, we're all so sensitive at the same time, hey? You know, we want someone to be really hard on us, to to make us sweat. Oh my God, they're killing me in class. My teacher, they're really hard on me, but they, they understand what, what, it, what is required. No, it's not that at all. Because in the long run, it doesn't matter. None of this matters. It's all noise because we're here to make art. We're here to make art. And if you're making art, you can't fail. So what's the shortest distance between you and you, the artist, you, the productive artist? That's what you have to look at. What's the shortest distance? What, what's the, you got it just like paying taxes. I always say this. You pay the minimum amount of taxes allowable, required in this country. That's what you do. That's what an accountant is there for. That's what a tax lawyer is there for. In this instance, what's the minimum amount of 
life tax you got to pay before you can make your art. So life tax would be like, well, you got to have a day job. You got to pay the bills, right? You got to find a place where you can make art. So you need your space. You need um, the people. You need your collaborators. You need your community. So you got to go out there in the world, which is often quite difficult. Don't pay for naysayers. Don't pay for people that are that are hurting you. Don't pay for people that are trying to make you into something you're not. You got to be you. I got to be me. Ethel said it best. Thanks for your call. I hope that helps. The Bold Newsletter, Episode 12, for Sunday, June 25th, 2023. The sociolinguistic tools we like deploy, you know? It's only old people that complain about subsequent generations. When I was young, I complained about their complaining. They don't get us. They don't know what it's like. What I didn't realize was how annoying young people can be to old people that are really just jealous of the high collagen levels present in the former. It's part resentment, but it's also because young people do annoying shit all the time. When I was young, I didn't know this. Now I know. John McWhorter, the Columbia professor of linguistics, said on his podcast, The English Language Evolves, and it always has. Vocal fry, the gravelly sound that comes out of your mouth when your larynx is compressed, is a result. As is upspeak, the penchant to speak in the interrogative, or like an Australian, when no question is apparent. It wasn't easy for my parents to understand why I painted my nails and had a Euro mullet or was obsessed with acting. I thought they just didn't get me. And I was right. Difference out of context can be jarring, like a goth in summer. Difference within context can be authentic. A surly server in a Salzburg cafe bearing tiny coffees, a newspaper on a bamboo spine, and a bad attitude is exciting. Some young people speak differently than I do. I join the judgy ranks of a certain age and dismiss. But it's just English. And English, like people, will betray you six ways to Sunday. In the 1920s and 30s, old people complained about how young people said, you know, too much. I remember my mom in the early 80s, in conversation with an older British woman at the bank, used the word weird, and the older lady laughed incredulously. She was of a generation that didn't use that word as commonly. The vernacular changes just as the linguistic does. Is there something lost when we annoy great swaths of people that may include the decision-makers? Do we plow on no matter what? If you can't be understood or taken seriously, I would suggest, if it serves... A code switch is in order. Read the room. Know your audience. You speak differently with your friend group. than you do with your parents. than you do with your boss. than you do with your neighbor. We do this all the time. 
As performers, we can choose which sociolinguistic tools we want to deploy to signal to the audience what kind of character we're playing. Vocal fry and upspeak become tools for further understanding. Where it falls down is when we aren't aware of what we're doing. A modicum of self-awareness takes practice, but oh, the enlightenment obtained when we do. I would argue that the glottal collapse that is vocal fry is used not only for emphasis, but at its worst to apologize or to take care of. Like upspeak changes a statement to a question, we're checking in with the person to whom we speak. We're taking the subordinate position because we're not sure or because we defer to the other person. If we're paying attention, we can go in and out of these linguistic choices automatically. It all starts with the breath. If you've taken vocal training, it is unlikely you will ever subconsciously run out of breath at the end of your sentences, which is what vocal fry is, essentially. If you're unaware of it happening, you're making the other person pay more attention to the end of your sentence by deploying or falling into fry. Someone who has vocal training won't likely think to use it just like someone that has trained in performance technique won't defer to others with upspeak. Our voice supports our ideas all the way to the end of the sentence. If there isn't enough breath supporting your voice, your sentences will lose power at the end. They'll trail off. Chances are people won't get your whole idea, and you'll get less of what you want. You have to send your ideas all the way through to the end of the sentence. The voice has to go past the last word. You hear theater actors do this naturally. Opera singers never suffer vocal fry. Nor do politicians, drunks, the homeless, or anyone else whose day-to-day survival requires they be heard. My 11-year-old still speaks like he's five. He finds it advantageous. He's done informal polling, and one currency he trucks in is a cute speak because he knows he's cute. His brother is 13 and has braces. He trades in intellect. He has facts and knows computers. I speak loudly in order to be heard. I have yet to try quietly. Perhaps I'm nervous. I am not confident that the young will still want to listen to me. Am I really listening to them? Or am I lost, once more, in their shiny newness, their lives stretching on endlessly before them? I'm less annoyed by difference nowadays, because I've become more self-aware, because I need it to survive, because the angry old guy is a crowded field. Like weird, right? Thank you for listening to the Bold Acting Podcast. It's the newsletter, strong opinions about performance technique, and a Q&A, all wrapped up in one. It's your one-stop shop, your one-stop listening shop. If you liked it, the best thing to do is to shout it from the rooftops. And after you finish doing that, I'd love for you to rate and review it with five stars, or just give it five stars. You don't have to review it. Just five stars. 
None of this four-star bullshit. And quit giving me suggestions, Dad. Just, just unconditional love, please. Oh my God. Uh, other than that, make sure you download the. Make sure I'm so pushy. You don't have to do anything you don't want. Just I, I just hope you like it, and I hope you subscribe to the newsletter at boldacting.substack.com. And I'd love for you to subscribe, follow me on YouTube, and watch all those videos. I've I'm putting together a new playlist called "How the Greats Did It." And it's me reviewing great performances throughout film history and TV. For more information, go to boldacting.com. And if you're in Toronto, come and check out my Sunday school. Sunday night drop-in cold read class, uh, 5 to 8 p.m. at Ground Glass cast, Casting. Uh, we're, we're taking a break for July 2023, and we're back July 30th. Uh, that'll be the first class back. And, um, and then I'm going to roll out more classes, uh, an advanced scene study, uh, commercial auditioning class, and for 2024, the rich actor, personal finances for the creative class. I'm so excited. Until next time.